Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly podcast entitled No Hard Landings. It is the 15th of November. My name is Lorna Denny, and I'm joined today by Niall MacDonald and Alex Byrne. Markets are hopeful that the threat of recession is fading, giving rise to a risk-on rally. Indeed, growth forecasts for the major economies have recently seen consistent upward revisions. A plateau for interest rates at these current levels seems a foregone conclusion, as inflation remains benign. Today, we will discuss our expectations for financial markets, along with some significant adjustments to our tactical asset allocation. Niall, could you set the ball rolling for us with a glance back at the major asset classes over the last few weeks? Sure. Good morning, Lorna. Well, October was a particularly challenging month for financial markets. So US government bond markets sold off, particularly longer dated bonds. So for reference, the yield on the US 10-year was up close to half a percent to 4.9%. So when interest rates rise, this pushes down the price of bonds. Euro government bonds were a little more resilient, but credit markets felt the pain as well. So investment grade, that's higher rated issues, reduced negative returns, and also high yield, so-called junk bonds also fell. This spread through to equity markets with global stocks falling. So October really was quite a blanket sell-off across all areas. However, in November, we've seen a complete reversal with a strong rally in both equity and bond markets. Two catalysts have been, one, Fed Chairman Powell's comments were softer than expected, and the market believes that we are now at the peak of the interest rate hiking cycle, so no more rate hikes to come. Two, a lower than expected CPI print this week produced another surge in asset prices. So bond markets have rallied strongly, and this has helped also support stock markets, which benefit from the easing of financial conditions. So typically, higher interest rates have a negative impact on stocks. In the US, the S&P is up over 6%. Technology stocks being the best performer. This sector typically is correlated to bond markets as cheap financing helps fund research and development and other areas. Europe up close to 5%. And again, the technology or growth stocks being the best performer. And then across the world, emerging markets and Asia-specific stocks also moving higher. Yes, thank you for that. It's quite a reversal from the scenario we were describing only a month ago when the market seemed to be in the grip of a poly crisis. What changed in the market's perception? Well, it's really all been about the two eyes, and that's inflation and interest rates. The Fed has been tightening monetary policy by hiking interest rates to combat the high levels of inflation post the COVID crisis. The market has been looking for more certainty on when these hikes are going to end. We have seen inflation falling, but the recent CPI print coming lower than expected, coupled with Powell's comments that interest rates are likely to be on hold and thus not increasing, has buoyed sentiment that we are at the end of the hiking cycle. But the Fed chair, Jay Powell, as you say, has has spoken of a range of uncertainties. And in the light of this, how can the markets interpret the Fed as either hawkish or dovish? Yes, indeed. Powell has caveated and highlighted the fight against inflation has not yet been won, quote, too early to call victory over inflation, quote. But market expectations that the falls we've seen in inflation, plus the current level of interest rates, will be sufficient to push inflation down closer to the 2% target. So when we look at the futures market, interest rates cuts have now began to be priced in by June 2024, and no more hikes are expected. That sounds all well and good, but the ratings agency Moody's has put the US on their negative watch list, following a similar move by Fitch only a month or so ago. How do all these conflicting views feed into the US Treasury bond markets? Yes, in August, the Fitch downgrade didn't engender some volatility in the Treasury market. 
The ratings downgrade was based on the polarized political environment in the US, which impacts on the debt ceiling negotiations and the government's ability to keep the federal system running and also the expected fiscal expansion in the US, so increases in treasury supply. I think we could see intermittent spikes in volatility in the treasury market from domestic political events in the US. However, US Treasury still remained the gold standard in safe haven assets. So holding these as part of a diversified portfolio is really essential for exogenous events that the world could throw at us. Not forgetting that the US government bonds, even currency hedge, offer a modestly attractive level of yield. Now, with the risk of getting a little too nerdy on bond market dynamics, there is a dynamic known as convexity in bond markets, and it's related to the shape of the yield curve. So the yield curve is not a straight line. And what it really means is that bond prices don't fall as much as expected when interest rates rise, and bond prices rise more than expected when interest rates fall. So if we take, for example, the US 20-year bond, if interest rates rise half percent, with interest income, you would lose about 1%. However, if interest rates fall half a percent, you would make 11% on that bond. So there are a lot of attractive opportunities out there for investors in government bond markets. That's a fascinating explanation. Thank you for that. But Alex, as I mentioned earlier, it's not only the US economy, though, that's seen forecast upgrades. The IMF has recently talked of a soft landing for the European economy. What's our current view? Yeah, some initial green shoots of positivity, perhaps, but we still have to have in mind the potential for a very negative outlook in Europe. Europe at the moment and the ECB walking something of a very delicate tightrope into year end into next year. If we look, however, at some of the more relevant data uh, that comes out of Europe, if we look at PMIs, which are Purchasing Manager Index, this looks at future looking confidence of corporate actors. It still doesn't look to have broadly bottomed. There are some very initial shoots of optimism. German manufacturing, for one, which has been very, very poor, for instance, recently beat forecast, but contextually still remains well into negative territory. Inflation has had a leg down with it slowing and plateauing mostly, but the core number, more worryingly, is still above 4%, but still moving down. Consumer and investor confidence is still deeply negative uh, with no signs of improvement. The GDP is stagnant and the most recent preliminary numbers show the number straying into negative territory, well away from any sustained or stellar growth. Uh, What's probably more concerning is the start of what we believe may be of an earnings downgrade in company earnings, something that we haven't up to this point seen. And it has been one bright spark of positivity for Europe, really. European equities are still something we are not massively favourable on as yet as a result of all these things. Um, However, there are a few positive elements or at least some more binary outcomes. The mild winter is very key to the overall macro picture. Um, So last year, we were looking at a very, very poor negative uh, outcome for Europe because of the, the massive increases in energy prices, which proportionally impact Europe much more than elsewhere globally. We were helped massively by that, by how mild the winter was in, in Europe last year and how late everyone turned the heating on. This year, we're much more prepared for it. Storage are high and the mix of energies is much better, but we still rely on fairly mild winter to support equity prices and earnings going forward. So if we continue to see that mildness throughout the rest of the winter, we'll be standing in good stead much more going into 2024. But as I mentioned, there has been potentially some improvement or at least some some improvement in some of the economic confidence. The IMF has said that service related economies should recover faster as manufacturing based economies will be held back by low demand and high energy prices. So there is a little bit of good news thereabouts. But on the whole, the macro picture in Europe still remains pretty negative. Well, it's good to get that broad macroeconomic backdrop, though. So, but how could all this impact the actions of the European Central Bank? Will they still be looking to dampen demand in the economy, do you think? 
So there's a number of reasons, firstly, why Europe and the ECB is very different from the US and the Fed. Christine Lagarde most recently has uh, noted that previous tightening or interest rate hikes is spreading into financing conditions. So we're beginning to see those those tightenings, those interest rate hikes impacting on the kind of grassroots of the economy and now feeding through into the economy. She also insisted that rates would stay at these levels for at least another two quarters. That obviously gives the, the market at least some positive guidance going forward. It's typically when we look at historical impacts around two years between the lag of starting the interest rate hiking cycle and that begins to have more of an impact on the underlying economy. We're obviously at that point now in the US and in Europe. There's also the impact of US rates indirectly in Europe. Um, they do have a, an outsized effect on Europe as, as the largest trading partner. The interest rate tries to obviously manage the spending of the underlying economy and of consumers in the underlying economy, as well as the increased rate rises. Europe's also had other things hindering that. So that there has been some other effects that have been managing the inflation and managing spending outside of rate rises. The ECB has always been a bit more wait and see, in my mind, a bit more cautious and for good reason than the US. The US labour market isn't a feature of Europe, so the strength in the US labour market doesn't come through. Uh, and the, as I mentioned, the energy prices have a much bigger factor and are largely uncontrollable by rate rises in Europe than they do in the US. So inflation is coming down, as I mentioned previously, but we're still in a very cautious period for the ECB. And it will be fascinating to monitor how the lagged effect of interest rates on these economies but we have recently looked on this podcast at the encouraging backdrop for Japanese equity markets. How are things looking there currently? Fairly interesting, I would say. We've been fairly positive on, on Japan at all. And there's the overall picture of Japan, but there's also the dynamic around which styles in Japan are more inclined to do, do better or worse. We've obviously had a period where value has done much stronger in Japan than, than growth, but um, Japan as a whole has done fairly well the last three to six months or so. But the interesting dynamic that we've been following more closely is around the bank sector and the bank's sector in Japan links to the US Treasury and obviously the rate rises that have happened in, in the US. If we look at the bank sector in Japan, it's done positive 148% since the start of 2021, 100% more than the broad index. It's the world away from what we've seen in the US where banks have gone up around 45%, where obviously they have the direct impact of the interest rates that have happened in their own markets, but we obviously haven't had that in Japan. But you know, these have shown some differential performance more recently. We've obviously seen changes in the US interest rates, but we've also seen some loosening of the positivity in the Japanese Bank of Japan policies. And they've had some kind of differential performance appear within banks where they haven't been as strong as you necessarily would have expected them to be, potentially implying that a lot of this is in the price already or is already known. And this could spark the restart of the growth and quality manager period of performance, something that, as I said, we haven't had for about two years now. So the view on Japan overall is fairly complicated, at least in the in the underlying portfolio construction. But the overall view is still fairly positive. There's some good medium and short term trends are appearing around corporate governance and improvements there that affect most of the Japanese companies. Their inflation picture is much better than elsewhere and also something that they have been trying to support not um, not get rid of in the main. The general supportive policy, supportive policy of the BOJ is still in place. They haven't obviously increased rates at all versus their Western counterparts, which have done so hugely. And the Japanese yen is a very interesting period at the moment as well, which we'll go into. Yes, let's look at that if we could. There has been significant weakness in the Japanese yen. Would you say this is a reflection of the recent actions by the Bank of Japan? Uh, to a degree, yes. It's more clearly the differential in approaches that the BOJ has had. 
than namely the US, but obviously most of the Western counterparts as well, in that Western counterparts have massively increased rates. They've gone into hawkish mode rather than supportive mode, um, whereas the BOJ has been firmly in the camp of being supportive. What that causes is a differential in the value of the currencies of the underlying economies, which has meant that yen is significantly weakened over the last two years. Now, if we look at the historic numbers, the JPY is currently at 151 versus the dollar. This is significantly weak versus history. It's only been in the last 30 years at this period twice, once during the global financial crisis and once during the Asian financial crisis. And at this level, it's certainly more recently, the JPY has historically been more supportive of the JPY and trying to support the currency overall. Now, to a degree, I think that's probably why they've gone to change their approach to the yield curve control, which is something very complicated, won't go into it. But effectively, this is the first stage of removing away from the super supportive policies of the BOJ of the last 10 years. But as I said, part of that, I believe, is to support the currency. And really, it is the US dollar which has been trading close to its highs for the year still. Any thoughts there, Niall? Well, dollar directionality has largely been driven by interest rates. So higher interest rates tend to attract foreign investment. This increases the demand for and then value of the country's currency. So pushes the currency value up. And that's what we've seen with the US dollar when the Fed last year went on its fastest hiking cycle in history. So the DXY, which is an index which tracks the dollar strength versus a basket of global currencies, has actually fell over November as we've seen yields come down. So it's not far off close to where we started for the year. Where it will go from here, really, again, interest rate directionality is key. So if the Fed began to hike interest rates again, we could see a surge in the dollar. Or indeed, if other central banks, notably the ECB, do begin to soften policy and the interest rate difference between the US and uh, Eurozone increases, this again could push up the price of the dollar. Yes, it's interesting how all these currencies work against each other. But then in response to this rebound in risk appetite, Nile, we've made some quite significant adjustments to our tactical asset allocation, as I said earlier. If you could outline those for us, please. Yes, indeed, Lorna. We've recently moved moderate overweight inequities. We believe the key risks facing economic growth are fairly reflected in prices at present. If anything, our sense is that we may see a stronger finish to the year in equity markets, given the recent momentum. It's more positive seasonal sentiment combined with more attractive valuations following the correction of markets from their highs in late July. Within equities, we prefer US, where mega cap growth companies are more likely to be the beneficiaries of positive sentiment given the interest rate outlook in the near term. To fund this, our preference is to reduce exposure to the riskier elements of fixed income, in particular emerging market debt and high yield. While we remain positive on both asset classes, For portfolio construction purposes, we prefer to take risk in equities at present and thus reducing risk elsewhere in portfolios helps to facilitate this. We still have our moderate overweight cash versus some alternatives as well to maintain a a defensive element within our portfolios. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you, Lorna.